Hey there, listener. It's Tino Tender Charles Rutanera here. I've always said when I grow up, I want to sound as smart and as professional as Jane Lindholm on the airwaves. Well, she's my guest today, and you'll soon find out why I hold her in such high regard. Jane was also kind enough, too, to record her part of the interview via the VPR recording studios, so you will pick up a marked difference in the sound quality between my questions and her responses. Maybe one day I'll have fancy recording equipment like her. But anyway, just wanted to make sure you're aware of the differences in sound quality within the interview. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is a podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. When I started my podcast in the fall of 2016, I knew I had the passion, but I wasn't sure if I had the skills to have a really interesting and meaningful conversation with my guests and ultimately reveal what made them tick. I knew that I wanted to talk to all kinds of people, entrepreneurs, politicians, musicians, Olympians, and local Vermont celebrities, people that I considered giants in their field. The problem is, I'm not an expert in interviewing, and I'm not an expert in any of the fields of my potential guests. And the truth is, in life, you only get to be an expert in one thing, maybe two things max. So how was I going to get started and get through all these interviews? So to begin with, I faked it through the first couple of interviews, remembering the advice I had received from a very dear friend of mine. She had said to me, do your research, ask your questions, and just shut up. Her advice worked up to a point. But now I've decided to bring in somebody who is at the top of the pyramid as far as interviewing on air is concerned and asking well-informed and probing questions of her guests. My guest today is Jane Lindholm, the host of the award-winning Vermont Public Radio program, Vermont Edition, and is also the host and creator of the But Why podcast for curious kids. Jane joined VPR in 2007 to expand Vermont Edition from a weekly pilot into the flagship daily program that it is today. Jane is also officially the voice of Vermont, and without her on the airwaves, I know I, for one, would still be living in the Stone Ages. Jane, it's an honor to have you as a guest of the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Oh, it's an honor to be here, and what an introduction. I don't think I can live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the interviewer has now become the interviewee. Yeah, I don't like that. I, I don't like that. I like asking the questions. There's a safety in that. 
I'll try to go easy on you, though. Please do. So I like to start my show by learning a little bit about my guests' childhood and what factors in their upbringing led them to become who they are today. So I wanted to know from you, where were you born? Where did you grow up? And what social groups were you a part of in school? Hmm. I was born in Middlebury, Vermont at Porter Hospital. And I lived in East Middlebury, Vermont with my mom and dad until I was eight, um, and I have a, a brother who's four years younger than I am. And my parents divorced when I was eight. They were actually separated when I was about four. So there was um, some chaos from ages four to eight. And then when I was eight, my mother moved to Massachusetts. And so my brother and I went to school in Massachusetts uh, where she worked. And we split time between there and Middlebury for the rest of our um, childhoods. And I went to high school where my mother worked, which was a prep school in North Andover, Massachusetts, called Brooks School, and then um, went to Harvard for college. And social groups, you know, it's interesting. I have always thought that I was pretty good at moving between and among many different social groups. And I think that's still true when I look back at my life. I had friends who were... Um, sort of nerdy. I really, I really loved school and academics and working hard and getting good grades and being a little bit of a goody-goody. And so I was <laughs> definitely in that group. Um, I also hung out with some of the slackers in high school. You know, I, I definitely, I actually was, I never smoked pot. I didn't drink in high school, but I hung out with a lot of the people who did, which always worried my mother. And I, you know, I sort of, I, my, um, many of my friends were, uh, were people who lived in other countries and came to the U.S. for high school, to this prep school. So my um, high school boyfriend was from Tokyo, Japan. So I felt like I had a lot of different friends in different friend groups. But now as an adult, I start to look back on it and think I was pretty oblivious to some of the social stratification and um, and cultural stratification that I just I wasn't even that aware of. But yeah, basically, I thought I was moving around a lot of different groups with some anxiety, but some ease. Well, you didn't do too badly. I mean, considering the way you've landed in uh, public radio, and then also the fact that you went to Harvard. I mean, uh, seems like uh, your mom's fears and concerns were a little <laughs> bit unfounded. Well, I was recruited to to be a rower. I was an athlete um, on the crew team in high school, and I was recruited to row at Harvard. I had never even, I mean, that school was not even on my radar. So it was a surprise to me, and still kind of a surprise to me that that's where I wound up. But yes, I, I had uh, a lot of determination and a lot of tremendous luck and privilege in my life. So you went straight from uh, college to public radio in Washington. Do you think that it was written in the stars that you your life would end up in public radio? No, not at all. I had I was one. I mean, I had no idea what I was going to do after college, and I studied anthropology, which I I think is a great training for somebody who wants to be a journalist. But that wasn't why I did it. I just was interested in the world and in social structures and how societies form and why we behave the way we do. And so I studied anthropology and then um, needed a job and remarkably was called by this producer at NPR who 
did a show called Radio Expeditions, which was a co-production of National Geographic and National Public Radio. And I had at one point written a cover letter to the head of NPR that was along the lines of, I was a backseat listener and I love NPR and I'd love to work in radio, but I have no journalism experience. Don't you want to hire me? <laughs> and this producer found my, my resume and my cover letter. And what appealed to her was that I had studied anthropology and that I had uh, traveled abroad and lived abroad several times. I was an exchange student in Kenya in high school and in um, Chile and college. And I had also written travel guides for Let's Go Travel Guides. And so I think that kind of international and cultural experience appealed to her and she offered me a paid internship. And so I, three weeks later, packed up and moved and lived in the basement of um, a house that some college friends had rented because they were all paralegals and I was making no money. And yeah, that was how I got my start. I, I don't think it was preordained at all, but it was certainly a, a lucky um, a lucky thing that she sort of plucked me out and offered me this job because it definitely launched my career. Wow. I think that was probably back in the day before people were being bombarded by emails and spam. So your <laughs> letter definitely got through there. Yeah, I hope so. She said she found it in a pile and said, oh, this is the person I want, which is just, you know, it was amazing. Yeah, maybe it was written in the stars, actually. I mean, you've been doing this for 16 years or so. Um, What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were starting your career in journalism? Not much, actually. I think the best thing is to learn from experience and Having some naivete and some inexperience has been hugely helpful to me as I was starting out in various jobs in public radio because I think one of the strongest qualifications for my current job is curiosity and a desire to learn and a desire to listen. And those are all things that you can have right from the start. And so having that curiosity, having that interest in people and what they do was always something that I had, and that's the thing that is hardest to preserve. You have to keep that sense of curiosity and and interest and not feeling like you know everything. So I'm glad I didn't know everything at the beginning. I think what I wish I had learned more of was to have a little bit more self-confidence that people would answer my calls if I needed to ask them something, you know, to have a little bit more in college more than in my career to say, hey, can you help me learn this? Or I'm interested in this. Can I shadow you? I wish I had done a little bit more of that. But there aren't many skills that I wish I had had because I think I really valued from having to muddle through and learn them. Hmm. That's interesting. So let's keep moving on now with your career. So you left uh, your job at NPR uh, but before before you joined VPR, you were still actively involved in the media space. Can you explain to my listeners what you were doing during this time? Sure. I worked for about a year and a half at uh, NPR in Washington. So I did my internship with Radio Expeditions and then worked for them for um, most of a year and then worked on a couple other shows, Weekend Edition Saturday and Talk of the Nation. And then I quit to go traveling um, to do one more book for Let's Go they had offered me the opportunity to write part of a guidebook to Australia. So I went to Australia, and then I went uh, from there, from my job with Let's Go, I, I went to travel around Southeast Asia. So I spent time in Bangkok, Thailand, and all over Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, and was planning then to go on to China and maybe spend six months there. My stepfather was living in China at the time in Beijing. 
But while I was traveling in Southeast Asia, I met um, the man who became my husband, and he's from Wales. And we traveled around in Southeast Asia for three or four months together, and then I wound up going back to Wales with him and spent some time with his family and then went to China and then came home and needed a job. And so I worked at Marketplace in Los Angeles for about three, three and a half years. And Adrian, uh, my husband, and I commuted. He lived in England and I lived in Los Angeles. And so we would um, meet in person and spend a couple weeks together every three or four months. But wow. that was pretty unsustainable, uh, although we did it for close to five years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't recommend it, but it worked out. And so I was looking for a way to come back east. My whole family was on the East Coast, and I have um, siblings who are 16 and 18 years younger than I am, and I was felt like I was missing their childhoods and also missing the last years of my grandparents. And so I was hoping to come back east, and um, my husband was planning to move over to wherever I landed, and then we'd um, get married and make a home together. And so... This position appeared at VPR. I had asked the news director at the time, you know, is there anything opening up at, in Vermont? I'd like to come back east. And he said, well, we're starting this new show and we need a producer and we need a host. And so I applied for the host job. And that's where I've been for the, almost 11 years now. Wow, your story sounds like uh, something in uh, from Eat, Pray, Love, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Way more mundane than that. I wish I could make it more romantic. <laughs> No, it sounds quite exciting. And also just considering the amount of traveling you've done, uh, I think you've probably got a pretty full passport. Yes. Although now that I, I mean, working in Vermont has had me be in one place and then I got married and we have two little kids. And so I have neither the time nor the money to travel anymore, which just pains me. But I hope at some point I'll be able to get back to it. Yeah, that's great. And so when VPR hired you, you had been working in the media space, um, producing and reporting for Marketplace and NPR. Did you have experience in live radio shows in front of the mic? No. When NP when VPR hired me, I had never done a single second of live radio. So I had directed it. I had been um, the director of Marketplace, so I told people when to speak and when to fire off the recorded sound and, and how to mix the music live. But I had never been in front of a live microphone ever until the moment we went on air for the first day of Vermont Edition. Wow. Were you terrified when you got the job? Yes, terrified. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely terrified. But it was hard to pass up. I mean, you know, you have this opportunity to host a new show and to do it in your home state and to really shape this program and um, and to be able to interview people. I, I had never wanted to be a host who read other people's introductions to pieces. But Vermont Edition is a show where I get to talk to people and sort of do live journalism. And that was so appealing as well as being so terrifying. So yes, both a combination of real excitement and sheer terror. <laughs> Absolutely. Tell me about it. So um, I always wonder, you know, with people, um, if they are successful by faking it till they make it, or do you believe that there must be a certain level of qualification <laughs> uh, in a position or role in advance? I think there's both. I mean, I think you, as you said in your introduction, you have to do your research and you should know, um, you know, you should know a little bit about the medium that you're working in. So what does a talk show sound like and how do you want to 
emulate the people you admire and then also forge your own path. But if you get too worked up and and worried about that, then you're not going to sound natural and real. And that was a struggle for me at the beginning, how to both be myself but also have sort of an on-air presence that was at least a little bit authoritative. I was 27, 28, 28 when I started. And so I was young and I had a young voice and I didn't have a lot of expertise in doing hard interviews. So some of it is trying to get a little bit of practice and a little bit of skill and really doing your research. But then the other part is using that um, that inexperience to your advantage. So I found that a lot of politicians in particular kind of thought that they could walk all over me because I was a young woman. I had a very friendly voice. I was new. They didn't know who I was. So I could ask them a question that seemed perhaps a little sweet and light and catch them in something and then, you know, hit them with the one-two punch and they weren't expecting it. So you could definitely use it. Now I can't do that. I'm old and haggard and everybody knows who I am. (laughs) But at the beginning, it was easy to, not easy, it was helpful to try to take advantage of my inexperience and my youth. So you've talked a little bit then about uh, inexperience and youth. Um, Is there still or was there uh, some institutional and cultural biases towards being a woman journalist? And how many times did you have to prove your credibility until the point where people now know who you are and what you're capable of? I never noticed an institutional bias against women. I was lucky. I mean, I graduated from college in 2001. And by then, Susan Stamberg um, and Linda Wertheimer had been on the air at NPR for a couple of decades, I think. So I had grown up with women's voices on the air and at least on the radio. And so it didn't occur to me that I couldn't or shouldn't or might face some harassment. And I I didn't face much. When I took this job in Vermont, there was a sense of who is this person? And I don't know whether that was gendered or not. Um, I think it was certainly based on age. And in some cases, I think there was definitely a piece to it that was gendered. But, I, you know, I was inexperienced. I didn't know really what I was doing. So I felt like people who were questioning my authority and my credibility had a legitimate case in doing that. So I, I didn't really take it as an insult. I took it more as a challenge that I had to overcome. There was a, a famous poet in Vermont who I had read her latest book of poetry and was discussing it with her on the air. And I had asked her a, a question about the significance of of some symbolism in one of her poems. And she said to me, well, what do you think it means? In this voice that suggested to me, you don't even know what you're talking about and I don't need to answer (laughs) you. And and I gave her an answer and I remember the the look on her face was like, oh, oh, you have some intelligence. Oh, you've actually read the work. And, you know, it was kind of remarkable to me that she thought I wouldn't have. And so I did occasionally have to prove myself and that's where the research comes in. You know, if you've read the book, you can say... I've read your work, and this is what I think of it. And then they don't really have a comeback. About a decade later, one of my male colleagues interviewed her, the same woman, about some work that she had done. And he had not read a single uh, lick of her poetry, as far as I could tell. And he asked her a question that I thought was even more banal and sort of, um, it was one of those, like, how does the Vermont landscape fit into your poetry? And she just answered his question. She didn't second guess him and she didn't try, she didn't bristle at it. So, you know, I do think there's some gender stuff going on there. Mm. 
So now that you've been doing this, and I'm sure there's like thousands of shows that you have uh, put on. I mean, I'm assuming you're in the thousands by now, right? Yeah, yeah, we are. Oh, cool. Um, is there a holy grail in journalism? And if so, what does getting there look like for you? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I, I don't know that there's a holy grail. I think, first of all, there are a lot of different kinds of journalism. And so I don't think there's one, you know, one holy grail. You can't even say objectivity because there's uh, journalism that also includes activism. That's not the kind of journalism I practice, but I think there's room for that. There's room for first-person journalism. There's room for long-form investigative work. So I think there's not so much a holy grail of journalism, but for me, I think the holy grail of interviewing is you have to learn how to listen. And it sounds a lot simpler than it is, but over and over, the thing that resonates for me in interviews that I hear and interviews I conduct is the ability of a host to actually listen to what the guest is saying. And that is difficult when you're in a live program and there's a screen where your producer is telling you something about the next guest or putting up a note on the screen of what another listener has written that you're supposed to read. So you're trying to read that uh, email and then also listen to what your guest is saying and the calls are going off and you have to make sure that you hit your time post so it's hard to listen, but that to me is really the holy grail, listening and then being curious. I don't think you have to be an expert when you're in an interview, but you have to have some curiosity, even in a subject that you think is not interesting, because if you can't find something of interest, your listeners are not going to find it either. So to me, those are the two pieces that I always work on, curiosity and listening. You actually had a little taste of that uh, recently when I hosted a town hall for Mayor Moreau Weinberger's uh, re-election. And typically for me, when I'm doing my podcast, it's just myself and I've got my questions and I'm listening to the guest and, you know, the conversation is quite simple. But this was adding in callers as well as uh, his campaign staff who were passing me information and notes. And yeah, it was quite hectic for me. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was quite an interesting uh, perspective of what actually happens behind the scenes. Yeah. And, and listening to what somebody is saying while you're also trying to multitask. I mean, we've read the studies that say humans are a lot worse at multitasking than we think we are. So it's very difficult. But, but if you don't listen, you'll miss really interesting things that you could follow up on. And if your listeners are listening because they don't have all those distractions and you're not and you just move on to the next question and they're screaming into their radio, wait, didn't you hear what he just said? Then you're not, you're not I mean, they're not going to respect you for very long. Yeah, so we live in a world with information heavy and uh, fast cycle environment. Do you think we actually learn anything at this point? Yeah, I do. I mean, I've had really gratifying experiences where people have told me, oh, I, I changed my perspective or I changed my um, uh, some policy that I have or some way that I work because of something that I heard on your show. And so I think that it does happen. I think, you know, it's it's up to us as consumers of media to decide how close we're going to pay attention and if it's going to change us. But absolutely, I think it still does. And I know it does for me. There are things that I listen to that have opened my eyes or changed my perspective just as a listener and as a consumer of media. So 
I hope that people are occasionally at least getting that kind of perspective from something they hear on one of the shows that I do, or who are at least better informed than when they have that next conversation with their classmate or their parents or their um, children or significant others. Absolutely. So when you're doing a show, how easy or difficult is it to set aside your own personal, political and other beliefs in order to truly represent both sides of an issue? And are you trying to represent both sides of an issue? I'm not trying to represent them, but I am trying to uh, give my guests the space to explain how they feel and what they mean. So sometimes... You know, for example, um, we don't, I don't think you always have to represent both sides or multiple sides of an issue just because not everyone is in agreement. On Vermont Edition, like seven or eight years ago now, we made the decision that we were not going to question the legitimacy of global climate change. So we don't represent that other viewpoint. We don't try to balance our guests on the show by having somebody who believes that climate change is happening and that it is primarily uh, man-made, and then somebody who says climate change is not happening. We just don't do that. I don't think that that serves our audience, and the science is overwhelming on that. So we go with the science. We believe the science. So, you know, we don't always feel like we have an obligation to represent every side of everything, but I think there is an obligation to illuminate an issue and to not pretend that things are simple because they're not. Even when there's overwhelming science that says global climate change is real, then the question becomes, okay, so what do we do about it? What are the policies? Why is our human nature to ignore this thing that's happening down the road in favor of our immediate circumstances and what will benefit us immediately? And how do we overcome that? I mean, there are tons of ways you can go in a conversation about that without having to feel like you're balancing is climate change real or not? So part of it is trying to figure out what's the appropriate angle, what's the thing that you can illuminate. And then your question about uh, my own personal beliefs. You know, in anthropology, we did a lot of study about personal bias and personal perspective and how that shapes uh, the writing that an anthropologist will do and the study. And that's certainly true for journalism. So I don't pretend that I don't have a bias or that I don't have personal experiences that then lead me to ask certain questions or to have blind spots in other areas. So I try to interrogate my own perspective and try to make sure that we're having guests or that we have other producers or um, other people who suggest ideas who can help make sure that we're actually shining light into those blind spots. But it's not hard for me to leave my personal convictions aside for the most part. 99% of the time, I'd say that's not hard. Got it. So has there been a topic that has kept you up at night? I mean, when I came back from maternity leave after having my first child um, four years ago, he's just about just about exactly now I came back to the show. And the first week or two, might have even been my first day back, we did a show about child abuse because there had been Uh, a horrific case where a child was abused and killed in Vermont under the supervision of the Department for Children and Families. And so we did several shows about that. Yes, yes, I remember that. Yeah, there there were, I think, three children who died in a short time frame. And that was really, really hard because 
thinking about a child who was abused and then killed, it's, yeah, that was very hard for me to separate my own personal feelings of just sadness. On the other hand, being a new parent and understanding how difficult it is, how exhausting, how confusing, how wonderful, but also just how uh, sort of all-consuming and and subsuming of your own personal individuality it can be gave me a lot of empathy for the struggles that parents have. It yeah. didn't make me feel like, oh, and I can understand how somebody could repeatedly abuse and then kill a child. But it did make me see that parenting is hard under the best of circumstances when you have enough money to eat and you have a safe house and you have a helpful and safe partner and you have good role models for what parents are supposed to be. If it's still that hard to be a parent, how hard must it be if you don't have those things? And so I think it made me a better journalist to tap into that empathy, even if it meant that it was also, you know, sort of anathema to my being to think about somebody hurting a child. Absolutely. And on on that subject of uh, parenting, uh, has motherhood changed your perspective as a journalist? It's certainly changed the amount of time I have to spend thinking about work. I feel like I'm just constantly tugged between having to take care of the kids and trying to do this job. And so I don't have as much time to sit and think about things. It's probably made me more efficient. Um but I, yeah, mostly what I feel like is I don't have enough time to do either job well, either parenting or journalism. Luckily, I'm not alone in that. <laughs> Great. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, Vermont Edition itself. And I know a magician never reveals her secrets, <laughs> but can you walk me through the process of how Vermont Edition is put together from deciding on a topic to identifying your guests' questions and, you know, actually how the show is hosted. Uh, so let's start with before the time you even get into the studio to record the show. How do you identify a story and then develop it into something that you'll bring up as a topic? Well, Vermont Edition is very much a team process. So we have three full-time producers and the four of us get together once a week and sometimes somebody else will join us from the digital side or uh, we have an intern. So we all get together and we hash out ideas. So we pitch each other ideas and then try to put poke holes in them uh, or think about, yeah, that's a good idea, but how could you tackle it? Who would the guests be? So we spend that weekly meeting trying to figure out what we might want to do in the following week. So we're working about um, three to seven days ahead, usually. And then the producer, each show will get assigned a producer, and that producer has to go out and do a little bit of research and figure out exactly what angle we should be covering and then find the right guests. And right now we have three uh, men who are producers, so he will have to find the guest, pre-interview the guest, um, write up some notes, make sure that we have the statistics, and then hand me the notes digitally the night before. So I get a packet of notes, and after I put my kids to bed, I read through the notes so I have a sense of who's on the show and what our structure of the show might be, and then I can read all of the links and all of the resources and get all of that information locked into my brain. Wow, that's a lot of information. It is, and it's like cramming for a test. I mean, they do the research, they do the hard work of figuring out what to keep in and take out, and then I cram for a test. So I'm really sort of the tip of the iceberg and the producers do a ton of the legwork to make the show work and sound right. 
And then, yeah, I come in at nine and the producer is working on making sure that all of the studio resources are working right and available. I write a script, um, which is basically just the introduction to the show and then in and out of breaks or the end of the show or, you know, introducing, reintroducing the guests, that kind of thing. It's a pretty slim script. And then I write some questions or at least the themes that I'd like to hit. And then we do a little pre-production around 11.15, and then at, from noon to one, the show is live. That's uh, that's quite intense. And so when you come into the studio at nine, you're in game mode at that point. Um, do you still feel nerves before a show, or do you go through any kind of routines? I No, not really. I mean, I don't really feel nerves unless something is going wrong. Either I am, I feel less prepared than I should be, or we've had a technical glitch. There are very few people who, as guests, will make me feel nervous because, you know, you, you're not fangirling. You're trying to interview them to get some information out, and you're doing it as a, in service to your audience. So it's less about me as the host and how I feel about somebody and more about what do we as a team hope to get out of this interview so that you can remove some of the nervousness that way. But if I'm unprepared or um, or if I feel like things are not going right, like our studio you know, line has fallen through and we're scrambling, then I can feel a little bit nervous. But yeah, otherwise it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a performance in some way. Well, the performance is what uh, would make me nervous. <laughs> so, uh, the, another talking about being nervous. What about uh, the wild card, which is uh, the callers themselves? Um, you know, because you never really know what you're going to get. Um, do you have to go through screening, and even after that, you really can't figure out what a person is actually going to say once they're on the air? Yeah, that's true. We do have a call screener, and so the call screener. Um, the, the goal of the call screening is to figure out who is this caller and what do they want to talk about and is it relevant to the conversation. So we think of calls as something that's very worthwhile and some shows really rely on calls and listener input and some less so, but the call has to be in service to the greater conversation and to all of the listeners. So it's not about making the show good for that one caller. It's making sure that the show works for all of the thousands of people who are listening to that caller. So we try to think about calls that are relevant. And the first pass on that is the call screener. And then in the studio, the day's producer is also there and can talk with the call screener because they're in a separate room about, does this person seem relevant? Are they on target? Are they going to get us to a new part of the conversation or bring something in that we hadn't thought about? And if not, if none of those things are true, then sometimes they won't put a caller up on the air. They'll tell the caller, you know, this isn't really relevant to today's conversation. So it's not about somebody's political viewpoint, but it's about relevance to the conversation. And then for me, yeah, I mean, I have a sense, I have a little screen that will give me about six words of what the person might want to say. And sometimes they say that and sometimes they don't. And sometimes if they've been waiting for 15 minutes, what they told the call screener uh, is totally different than what they want to talk about when you actually take the call. So it is a little bit of a wild card. But that's part of the fun. I mean, what we're doing is live journalism. And so listeners have a role in that. And they also, people who are not calling in still get to listen to that. There's no editing. You know, we don't have the opportunity to take out a flub or take out something that a guest says that is not what we wanted, you know, where we wanted them to go. It's not like a recorded, reported story. It's live. And I appreciate that. 
And then I also appreciate how informed and incisive our callers are, because I think Vermonters in particular are really engaged and invested in their communities and in the um, in in everything that's happening in politics, you know, in cultural events, and so and and they tend to go with us when we want to have a conversation that's maybe a little bit difficult or narrowly focused. And if I say we're not talking about this, but we want you to talk about this. Um, the callers will always go there. It's really wonderful to feel like we're having a conversation together. Yeah, yeah. So out of all the interviews you've done, do you have any particular occasions where you look back and chuckle or grimace or maybe even thank God that you weren't fired? <laughs> yeah, there's one that I am pretty grateful I wasn't fired about, which is we had a wonderful author on whose name escapes me, but he wrote a book about how running helped him deal with alcoholism. And so he talked a lot about running through Burlington and, and about his alcoholism. And there was one chapter when from when he was a student at UVM that I thought, oh, he should read this passage because it's really evocative. And I remembered the passage. I had read the book. But when I asked him to read it, I had forgotten that it had two F-bombs in it. <gasps> He started reading, you know, it's live radio. We don't have a, a delay. We don't have a um, a bleep button. So he started reading and I was reading ahead and I realized, oh, my God, he's about to say that word. And he did. And he read it and he read it again. He read it twice. And I thought, I'm my job is over because, you know, we can't. This was like, you know, the FCC is going to fine us and I'm going to lose my job. And it, none of that happened. We had nobody who even called in and complained. So I was very lucky in that case. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. I love that story. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's that's great. I mean, I, I, I can only imagine uh, what must have been going through your mind at that time. Yeah, I was definitely sweating at that point. That's when the nerves kicked in. Like, oh, my God, how do I how do I deal with this? How can I mitigate it? And, you know, he obviously thought, oh, I guess it's that kind of show where I can read it. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, um, in closing, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? I would definitely tell myself, do all the traveling you can, because you never know when your circumstances are going to change and it will be more difficult to travel. And, you know, I, I was not somebody who had the means to do a lot of traveling, you know, I didn't have a lot of extra money, but I found ways to either study abroad or travel and work. Um, and so I think those were illuminating experiences, especially now that I'm back in Vermont and have a pretty stable home life that is based around a small radius. Because if I had not seen other parts of the world and engaged with people, and for example, if I hadn't had to struggle to make friends and study and work and live in my second language in Spanish in Chile, I think I would have less of an understanding of what it's like to come to America and try to live in your second or third language. So having those experiences, even if they're not exactly the same as what people, other people experience, has definitely given me more perspective on the world, and I appreciate that. So I would tell myself, do it, travel. Any chance you get, any chance you get to engage with people who are different from yourself, do it. And 
I think the other advice would just be relax, see how it unfolds. Do the things that you're passionate about because they will lead you to the next step. You don't have to have it all worked out. But if you follow things that you feel passionate about, you'll get somewhere interesting at the very least. Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, travel is definitely something that uh, opens everybody's eyes and gives you a different perspective of, of the world and how other people see something that you might see a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Jane, how can people learn more about you and Vermont Edition, um, as well as uh, your new podcast, which we didn't get a chance to talk about, but uh, the But Why a Podcast for Curious Kids? Uh, you can find most of my work at vpr.net. So you'll find all of the Vermont Edition segments and my bio there, as well as the But Why segments. You can also find But Why and Vermont Edition uh, as podcasts. So wherever you get your podcasts, you can listen to both of them. And I'm really proud of But Why. It's a show for kids that's now international in scope. We've had questions from kids in 47 states and 33 countries. Wow. And my co-producer, Melody Baudet, and I take the audio questions from kids and find interesting people to answer them around the world. And so that's been really fun to do a show that treats kids um, as fully functioning individuals in this world who are engaged and interested in what's going on around them. So you can find at any rate, but why and Vermont edition at vpr.net or on your podcast feeds. I would definitely recommend the, but why podcast. I uh, really have enjoyed listening to that with my daughter as well. Oh, good. Yeah. So Jane, uh, I cannot begin to tell you how big of an honor it is to interview you. Um, as the host of Vermont Edition, you have an incredibly important job in keeping Vermonters informed and educated. I mean, your job matters. Uh, smart, fair, independent journalism is essential for a democracy to function well. And by reporting what government, businesses, and other powerful people and institutions do, people like you give us citizens uh, information that we need to decide everything from paid sick time to fire safety during winters and uh, even who we should be voting for. So uh, I've learned more about my community and my state and indeed myself uh, from listening to your voice on the radio. So on behalf of myself wow. and all Vermonters, I want to say thank you and keep up the good work. And that was absolutely true. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate that. And I think of myself as a proxy for the listeners. So you know, insofar as I can ask questions of politicians, because that's what other people want to know. You know, I, I get to be the vehicle, which is a huge privilege, but I definitely think of myself as um, part of the people and that's who I work for. So I really, really appreciate your words. Thank you very much. And we do consider you that as well. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast On the Shoulders of Giants, I talk to Jan Reynolds, an award-winning author of 17 books, a photographer, a world-class skier, mountain climber, and expeditioner, whose favorite thing to do is to escape to an extreme environment and hang out with the locals and learn about their culture. So when I visited these indigenous tribes, what I need to help you remember is that before we really used money, we were trading. And when I visit these indigenous tribes, I come with a few trade.
trade items that I can carry because I can't take much with me. I've got my backpack and my cameras, but I will take um, silk scarves, wool scarves, gold and silver jewelry. I won't take junk like plastic watches that will fall apart. I'll bring something that I think is decent trade items. And when I will meet these people, I make a few trades and that starts to build some trust. So you have to, you know, rewind your mind, go back into time, think of Marco Polo. So Marco Polo on these long trade routes from Europe to Asia that people used to open their doors to traders because that's where you learn things. That's where you get these wonderful trade items. So we have forgotten today because we can drive our cars, we can live in a cubicle, we can order things online. We start to disassociate from each other but for human beings, for almost all of time in our more basic tribal trading life, we were meant to meet people. We were meant to open our doors to each other. We were meant to trust each other. We were meant to make these trades so that we each can survive. 